we are gathering at Jesus' feet as best we can these months, listening to his uh, teachings and trying to make sense of them. May the words of my mouth be acceptable in thy sight. As we've been exploring uh, some of those issues in our, in our book study, Bishop uh, Curry of the Episcopal Church um, said, well, you know what you just need to do to uh, figure it out? Just need to read the Bible. You need to see what what Jesus said and what Jesus did. And then just compare whatever is your topic to Jesus. Just kind of line them up. Just kind of line them up. And you'll have your guidance as a disciple of Christ. And I thought, <laughs> it's kind of what we've been doing all year. Bishop, haven't we? We've been, we've been kind of in our minds lining up the way of the world to the way of Jesus and drawing if there's a contrast or if there's a motivation, discovering it and, and trying to get ourselves in that Methodist way of going on to perfection. Today, we're examining Jesus's teachings on the poor, on the hungry, on the disadvantaged. What does Jesus say about the marginalized? And what do we learn then about our responsibility, our relationship to the poor? Jim Wallace tells uh, an interesting story about his youth uh, he was a seminary student in Chicago, and he was gathered with a bunch of other seminary students. So this must go back, I don't know, 50 some years or so. And uh, these whippersnappers decided that they were going to go and get into the Bible and see what the Bible had to say about a particular subject. And that particular subject for him was the poor and the oppressed. By God, they were going to read the Bible in light of the poor and the oppressed and see if the Bible had anything to say about the poor and the oppressed. And so as a young energetic seminary student, you have the time for that because you are passionate about it. You've got cigarettes, you've got caffeine, you've got all sorts of things that motivate you, your friends, everybody edging you on. And so you go after it and you might stay up a couple nights or you might do it for a couple weeks, but you do it. And to their astonishment, they found that there were thousands, big S, of verses about the poor in the Bible. Those who were marginalized and forgotten by everyone else, those who are mistreated and abandoned on the bottom of society, keep appearing in the Bible, he writes, as a central concern. 
the Bible we discovered was full of poor people. Even more startling to discover, God is portrayed throughout the Bible as the deliverer of the oppressed. In the Old Testament, the subject of the poor is the second most referenced subject in all of the Old Testament. Do you know what the first is? Idolatry. Idolatry is number one. The second most discussed topic is the poor. And often, they're connected. In the New Testament, one of every 16 verses is about the poor. In the gospel, it's one out of 10. In Luke's gospel, it's one out of seven. In the epistle of James, it's one out of five. Verses that talk about the poor. We thank Jim Wallace and his cronies those 50 years ago or so for their scholarship. And we ask God, what's up with this? What's the deal? What are you after from us or for them? Jesus and the religious tradition in which Christ is located had a lot to say about the poor and the marginalized. And actually, it was a very simple and a consistent message and was said often and was said in a variety of ways. God loves the poor and the outcasts of society. Whether society does, whether the people of the society do, God loves them. And beyond that, God seems to expect that everyone should treat them justly and provide for them. This is a startling declaration to many people, especially to those who believe the poor are inferior people, or at least are not worthy of God's love and their care. The most popular scripture text in America on the poor is Mark 14, 7. For you always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish, but you will, you will not always have me. Remember Jesus saying that? It's not the most popular scripture verse about Jesus and how we ought to attend to Jesus. It's the most popular scripture verse about attending to the poor. People remember the first phrase that comments on the regrettability of the reality of poverty. It does not give blessings upon maintaining that reality of poverty. And people tend to ignore the second part 
It is good that people are attending to Jesus while Jesus is present in front of them. Because, you know, you can care for the poor all the time once he's gone. And little do they know, he's going to be gone in a number of months in their lives. That's what he's talking about. Here's your opportunity. Too often, modern Americans interpret the text as an excuse not to care. The poor will always, you will always have with you, gets translated into there is nothing we can do about poverty. Is that the same statement, those two statements? The poor will always be here, so why bother? Wrong understanding of the passage, which was intended to draw attention to a standing, attending to Jesus while he was physically present, and by missing the lesson, going in the whole wrong direction of what Jesus wanted us, his followers, to do. We are not to tolerate poverty with regret. We are to deal with poverty somehow and the marginalizing that accompanies it as a hallmark of our faith, as a central thing of our faith. Now, our first text today is a very direct one. Give to everyone who begs from you. And then it tosses in the golden rule, huh? High probability that Jesus said these words. They're direct to the point. They fit right into Jesus' spirit that we see in the rest of the Gospels. Now, is there... Any misunderstanding as to what Jesus means by this saying? As comfortable, uncomfortable as it might be, is there any misunderstanding of the words? Right? Give to the one who begs means give to the one who begs. I mean, I, I don't know how we can work around this. Um, Sustain their life somehow, perhaps, right? No qualifications are added to this, though, from Jesus. Now, back in the day, they didn't have the safety nets that we have tried to create in our society. Or at least not the safety nets that we have tried to create. So we, we have some discussion to figure out how we do that, right? But, you know, the way we don't do it is get rid of all the social safety nets and get rid of our charity to people who are impoverished. We can't do both. If we get rid of the safety nets, we got to up the game of giving ourselves personally, directly, if we're going to meet the ask of this commandment. Direct forward statement of Jesus's. And if, and if we're not going to be out there with a bunch of fives that we're handing out at every person that looks at us, 
then we better work with one another and build those safety nets that seem to be a collective way by which we respond to people who are begging. So maybe there is some discussion about this, but keep in mind, Jesus is not, you know, making a lot of caveats with this statement. It seems to be a very direct statement. The second is saying, with a focus on the end times and the last judgment, it's saying that the method of judgment is a certain thing. And that thing underscores how we live. Remember how Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor? Matthew 25 is fully in the spirit of Jesus' words. And it gives us a feeling that, that the church has picked up on that and has run with that ball of caring for the poor. And they've come to understand it as a way by which God is actually going to judge those who believe in God. Wow. Dorothy Day writes, the mystery of the poor is this, that they are Jesus. And what you do for them, you do for him. Now, did you hear that in that second gospel reading? Wasn't that there? Yeah. Our love is made real in our caring. Our faith is made real in our love. It's an incarnational thing. It's a way by which we follow in the steps of how the Spirit animated Jesus. The Spirit animates us. Bill Wagaman writes, the, the community of faith rooted in the creative process of God and in God's gracious love must attend to the basic material necessities of life without which people suffer and die. Christians are not unique in this hard-headed perception of reality, that reality is like that. But they may, we may, he writes, have particular insight to the moral obligation to ensure that all people should have access to the necessities of life. He likens it to our free experience of grace and the saving of our soul. And God gives that freely to all of us. We need only to ask to receive it, to be open to it, to experience it. If grace is unconditional and free like that, might we be supposed to keep each other alive in an unconditional, free kind of a way as well? 
It's, it's a matter of, of social will that comes from our religious will. How much we want to express the conviction that's in our heart and on our soul about actually being brothers and sisters to one another. Or whether we're willing and find it more comfortable to step to the side and to say, well, that's not my child. That's not my spouse. Those aren't my grandparents. Let's just let them be. I can't help but share this, this poem that I found because it, it just uh, buckles my knees um, and it fits, it just fits so well into our scripture that we read today and into our understanding of Jesus' call and the burden that Jesus puts on our hearts to be people of love and caring. And it, it, it plays, this poem plays off of the uh, Good Samaritan story. But if you listen real quickly, it's really based on the scripture that we read today. A homeless woman once approached a preacher for help. But because he was busy and he had a finance committee meeting that night, he had to get home and he had to start the Zoom. He had to get all that stuff going. He just quickly offered a prayer for her and then kept going. The woman, it is said, wrote this poem as a response to that insensitive minister. I was hungry, and you formed a mission committee to discuss my hunger. I was in prison, and you prayed by candlelight for my release. I was naked, and you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick, and you researched the illness and thanked God for your health. I was homeless, and you preached to me the spiritual shelter of the love of God. I was lonely and you left me to my privacy. That one hits me hard. You seem so holy, so close to God, but I am still very hungry, very lonely, and very cold. We all hear Jesus' teaching. And we know that we are trying to respond as best we can. That's all we can do is to try to figure out and respond as best we can. But we need to respond as best that we can. Indeed, if we want to be Jesus' disciples who obey his teachings and indeed find ourselves being welcomed joyfully into the kingdom, 
our second passage says, well, then it's imperative for our own sake as well as the sake of the world that we find ways to love our neighbor so that it makes a difference in their basic well-being. The work of the church. It is us, friends. This is our work. This is our glory to be able to hear this and respond. Thanks and praise be unto God. Amen.